I'm doing great. I'm doing great, pal. It's great to hear your voice. Great to talk with you. Let me uh, introduce everyone here. We have Keelan Ellis. Hey, Keelan. What's up? Nice to meet you. We have Damien nice. De La Torre. Hey, how's it going? Damien. And his brother, All right. Ike. Brother? Yeah, it's his brother. We got two <laughs> got brothers it. working From here. the same mother. Yep. <laughs> got it. All right. So we were thinking, what, what do we do for our Halloween episode? We never even thought we'd have a podcast until this virus happened, so we decided just to do it, and then it's like... What could we do for Halloween? And we had all these ideas, and it's like, what makes more sense than calling Larry the Wolf? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm very flattered. That's all right. I, I agree with you. What better thing could you do? Yeah, right? <laughs> Tell me about it. So, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. We're going to talk about some horror movies and monsters and music and, um, you know, the world. So, but let's start with you, Mike. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Uh, I am originally from the Bronx, New York, uh, near Arthur Avenue. So any native New Yorkers from the Bronx will know where that is. And uh, I uh, was a uh, against against my will. I was in, under protest. I ended up in Ohio uh, 50 years ago when my uh, father was relocated to Cleveland area. So I ended up in Northeast Ohio. But it was a good time to come here because that was uh, the era of uh, the ghoul and Hulant, Big Chuck and late night horror movies and all that stuff. So it was a great time to be uh, raised in uh, Northeast Ohio. And I've been here ever since. I, I think people like and I think growing up, I'm not even say it's a regional thing. I think it's an age thing. But growing up in the 70s, everyone had their own like horror host pretty much or at least regional horror hosts like in Cleveland. We had the ghoul, but I know that Detroit had the ghoul as well. We had Houlihan and Big Chuck. Um, we had Superhost to a lesser extent on Sun. Was that Sundays or Saturday? Sundays. That was Saturday afternoons, and then they also brought in Sir Graves Gastly for a while, who I think was a Detroit. I think they uh, cross-pollinated Superhost or the ghoul to uh, to Detroit and Sir Graves down here to Cleveland. So, so what happens is, as kids, you're you're growing up, you know late nights on Fridays, you're watching Houlihan, Big Chuck, and then cutting over to Midnight Special. So your Friday nights are rock and roll and monster movies and comedy. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. And Midnight Special is true because that's about the only way you can see cool stuff. 
Um, but it was interesting because I just missed the um, the Zachary era. I was a little too young for that. And that was in the uh, tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, New York City. And so I missed Zachary. But as a kid, I remember I used to watch Chilla Theater or Chilla Theater. And they had two different intros. One, and you can see both of them on YouTube. They were both, they, they just get uh, ingrained in your mind as a kid where you would see the um, first was a, the first intro was just a collage of movies. And you saw like the, the, the giant furry hand coming in from the, uh, I think the uh, uh, attack of the 50 foot woman. And then you saw the, uh, the monster, the guy with the, uh, the one side of his face eaten away from more of the colossal beast and oh, just a bunch favorite. of clips. And, uh, and then the second uh, very memorable um, intro for Chilla Theater was the uh, six-fingered claymation hand that would come out of a swamp. So those, those were both just, uh, again, etched into your mind, burned into your mind as a kid. And as a mind's eye, I can see that. But the nice thing is you can go on YouTube and see both of those intros. But I missed the Zachary era. And as you mentioned, every, every uh, market had their uh, local weatherman or sportscaster or somebody uh, dressing up to be uh, a uh, you know a weekend monster movie host when uh, Universal um, and Real Art whatever it was released that initial package of I think it was maybe eighteen or twenty old Universal monster movies into the market in the mid sixties or early sixties. But yeah, it was it was great to move to Cleveland in that era and have Friday nights. I used to sit and draw comic books, uh, try to draw like my favorite artists, whether it was Jack Kirby or uh, John Romita Sr. And uh, I'd wait for Houlihan Big Chuck to come on. And then Saturday night was the same same routine. And uh, I'd switch back and forth between the ghoul and the midnight special, depending on somebody cool was on. Yeah. So, I mean, for these guys, like Keelan is from a whole different age group. I mean, Keelan, do you watch those older monster movies? Does it have an effect on you? Or are you just like a slasher guy? Uh, no, I grew up loving the classic Universal movies. Frankenstein, Dracula, Hunchback of Notre Dame. But... Um, I did. My favorite was, of course, Chucky and Freddy Krueger. I was never a big Jason or Michael Myers fan, if if that matters or not. But Chucky and Freddy were one when I was in elementary school, going to Blockbuster and getting the VHS tapes of those. Yeah. So that was kind of my horror upbringing. What about you guys, as brothers? Did you guys lay around and watch movies in your little pajamas? <laughs> yeah, holding hands. <laughs> we were pretty much the same way. Like we would go to Blockbuster and pick out whatever VHS, you know, um, especially in October. Um, but I think... Well, we'd hang out with our neighbors who were like... Monsters. Three to five, five <laughs> years older than us. So uh, that was the first time I watched Nightmare on Elm Street and like the Halloween movies. And I was like, this is amazing because like it's so scary and there's boobs. Oh, so, well, there you go. <laughs> and being like a 10-year-old kid, I was like, this is fucking awesome. <laughs> so, so for our generation, what happens is, you know, you had the original Universal and, and horror was a big thing in the, in the early 30s. And, and Wolfman goes later on into the 40s, right, Larry? Yeah, that's 41. Well, you had, you had Werewolf, uh, Werewolf of London with Henry Hull, I think, in 35, which is the precursor. But yeah, 41, 42, 41 is uh, Wolfman. Yeah, so then our parents, or that generation at least, it kind of came back like, like the Kiss reunion tour and Kiss came back with like yep. the Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. And then all of a yeah. sudden, like everything was monster based. There was magazines. There was the House of Frankenstein that kids could watch. There was Saturday morning TV cartoons with the universal type monster. So it was it was everywhere. Um, 
and then at the same time is music going on. So, so for you, Larry, what is it first? Is it music or, or did monsters happen first or comic books? What, what's the timeline that you had? It would, it, it would have been monsters. And, uh, actually, uh, it's a little bit of both cause I remember my first favorite thing was monster movies. Um, and then, uh, we had an old record. My parents had terrible taste in music. Uh, they just didn't listen to records, but my grandfather listened, but we did have a, a record in the house called Poe for Moderns, and it was uh, themed music to eat, and it had a very weird uh, cover with a skull and a, and a raven on the front, and there was a, a, a song in there, it might have been to the Tomb of Ligier or something, it was just soundtrack music, and uh, there was whistling in it, and my father said, oh yeah, that's the Wolfman whistling, so then I was hooked on that record, even though it was not rock and roll at all. But uh, my first real memory was watching monster movies with I had my uncle Ed Pasolacqua would indulge me. We he would buy me famous monsters of filmland magazines when my mom wouldn't. Um, he would buy me uh, whatever Marvel comics were at the uh, the newsstand, and he would sit with me on uh, Friday Saturday night when I was a little kid, and we'd watch. Uh, We'd eat devil dogs and watch whatever was on Chiller Theater. So he just indulged me whatever monster movie I wanted to see. Um, wait, 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 real quick. Do you guys, being from the West Coast, do you know what devil dogs are? I was guessing some kind of hot dog. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no, the eggs. Isn't it eggs? No, it's a deviled <laughs> egg. Deviled <laughs> eggs. Devil dog eggs. Safe to say no. Let them know because yeah. they're delicious. It, they're tasty. It's kind of like a, uh, I don't know, a little Debbie or a hostess uh, ding dong oh, okay. or whatever you want to call oh, it. But yeah, it, yeah. It, it's, it's shaped like it looks like a, a hot dog bun in chocolate cake right. and then with cream in the middle. So I was it, so it, close. It looks like a hot dog and it has to be made with eggs, right? Well, yeah. No, I don't okay, know. so I was right. I was in the <laughs> wheelhouse. <laughs> it's, it's a confectionery item. Yeah. So, but we, we'd watch that. And then the, it was kind of a. a a perfect storm of everything. So being a little kid in the late sixties, as Tim, as you mentioned, you had the whole monster craze. So you had Aurora monster models. Yep. You had famous monsters magazines everywhere. It was the golden age of Marvel comics and you had the, the monster movies on TV. So it was just gigantic. Uh, all the, all the planets aligned. So, I mean, Driving around Old Japan, New Jersey as a kid on my chopper bike with the big banana seat and the, and the uh, ape hangers in the sissy bar. And then going home and I'd watch uh, Groovy Ghoulies or whatever it was on TV uh, or the Archies. And, uh, you know, you had great music like uh, One Summer Was Sugar, Sugar by the Archies was the biggest song. The next summer was Indian Reservation by Paul Revere and the Raiders. Mm -hmm. There was just a lot of cool things going on. But And then the other piece of that was, was the... Uh, the early um the uh mary marvel marching society which i remember from when i was about five years old hit which had these little jingles at the beginning of their short cartoons of captain america iron man um hulk and thor and submariner and those complemented the half hour shows that came out of fantastic four and spider-man everybody knows the spider-man theme song so it was just this uh this intersection of all these cool things. And then, of course, this is Tom Jones was on Thursday nights mm -hmm. that everybody who was cool wanted to watch. And that sparked Elvis's comeback in 68. So, I mean, there was everything, everything aligned perfectly to be a kid in that era was just magical. So yeah. I don't I don't know. I, I gave you a long roundabout answer. 
No, no, it was, it was perfect because it's hard to describe. And I think you used the term a perfect storm and you were right. And I don't know if there's ever been maybe post-war, you know what I mean? With rock and roll and Elvis and Chuck Berry and all those guys, you know, that was another perfect storm. But like for us, you know, when you had the first original run of the horror films, those were to get people's minds off things like the Depression or World War II. For us, it was just cool. We were so lucky. Like we just got to, you know, witness and experience these monster movies just because they were great movies. We, it, you know, no one's trying to take anything out of our lives like like they were then. Um, and, and like you said, there was great music everywhere. You know, I remember there was Saturday morning cartoon show and the, like the Hudson Brothers hosted it for a while. Then there was something called Captain Cool and the Kongs which the Osmonds actually wrote the song. So you were just so, I mean, it just seeped into you, music and creativity. And, and it worked for a lot of people. And I think that's why there was such a creative boom in the 70s going in, maybe into the 80s a little bit, or at least the 60s and the 70s. I, I, I mean, Larry, would you say like maybe 65 to 76 was just the golden age for all that kind of stuff? Yes, because I think music pretty much uh, turns to shit around 1970 seven or eight you know popular music yeah except you know you'd have you have to look for things like when the sex pistols hit um you know the cramps a little bit after that and then we, we get into hardcore and, and that all is with punk but uh yeah i i can almost if i'm listening to 70s station on uh sirius satellite if it's if it's up to about 75 76 it's pretty good the earlier in the 70s the better but by 77, you know, things like Mata Hoople and Slade were gone. David Bowie wasn't David Bowie anymore. Kiss arguably hit. And then, you know, they they hit their peak very quickly. Yeah. And, uh, Grand it, Funk breaks up. Grand Funk breaks up. Well, and even before that, uh, Todd Rundgren takes over their production. <laughs> and then and, uh, and Oh, and I have, yes. And I have to, and I have to mention, just as good, I promise you I'd mention this. I know when you had your recent uh, bass uh episode oh, Jesus I, it, it absolutely sacrilege that nobody in there mentioned mel shacker as one of the great bass players uh, dude, of all time. i know and the i got post- i got hit up i john keener who i love dearly is like you didn't even mention dennis dunaway from al i'm like yeah there was a oh, lot yeah. we didn't talk about i mean it's yeah we only have an hour even, man even dennis dunaway with a zb3 his little uh gibson bass with the uh short neck it's a cool sound i mean the, the intro billion dollar baby is one of the all-time great bass lines but nothing, nothing was like Mel Shacker. Mel Shacker, his vase was the equivalent of Black Bolt in the Inhumans in Marvel Comics. His whisper could level a city. Wow. Mel Shacker's bass tone was that massive. I like that. I like that. People forget about Grand Funk. We were actually listening to Grand Funk in here earlier today. And they were, I mean, if you want to talk about the ultimate American, they, they use the term Chad now. Like, no one was more about freedom than Mark Farner. I mean, shirtless. Hair blowing in the breeze, just the best licks ever, man. Like if I looked like him, I wouldn't wear pants ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would be like, "Fuck, I'm Mark Farner, bitch." I mean, they were so great, and I agree with you up to the Todd Rundgren. Although I, that's a good album, and there's some stuff yeah, on the Zappa is. stuff too. I mean, they were great. I didn't like when they added the keyboard player, but it helps in some areas. But those first what five records, made six records, I'll say, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, and the the live album and the first live album and you know there's the Caught in the Act '74 live album with uh, Craig Frost on the keyboards. Yeah. But the live album that I really think is the best is the '71 live album that came uh, the '71 tour that was released like 20, 30 years later. Yeah, it came later. That, yeah, it was also uh, uh, recorded uh, by uh, I believe it was Paul Heyman Senior, 
And, you know, that's that's the purest live album there is. I mean, there's no overdubs. There's nothing. That and maybe Mata Hoopa Live, uh, where you can actually hear Overrun Watts make a mistake or two, and then you're like, oh, shit, that really is a pure live recording. They sound that great with no overdubs, no corrections, and that's how Grand Funk was. And and if you haven't heard what Larry's talking about as far as Mel's bass, listen to their cover of Gimme Shelter, and just, uh, it will blow your head off, the bass on that song. Oh, yeah. That well, the whole thing, and you know, there's a famous, and I know we we transitioned, we're bouncing all over the place, but um, it, it, it was it was a perfect uh, segue because you're right, Grand Funk early '70s is just they're prehistoric. I mean, they just bludgeon you when Terry Knight is producing it, um, and then when they get a little more polished after they go through their lawsuit and have to uh, come up with some hits to uh, to save their careers, but. Um, his sound was interesting because and just a real technical quick piece people see him playing a uh, a jazz bass i think it's a 68 or 69 fender jazz bass but if you notice his pickup is swapped out for a gibson humbucker or mudbucker as they're called from an eb1 or an eb3 or an ebo and that with flat round strings overdriven the shit with the mid-range pumped um with suppose you know they have all stories about guys standing behind his amps uh screwing in fuses as quickly as he was blowing them out um with all the gain on it just a monstrous sound yeah you know, just so that's one of my few my the two bands i truly regret never having seen well first was elvis of course i know you brought up jerry Schiff during that conversation grossly underrated as yes, a, thank you as a, ronnie tut um uh, I once heard Roddy Tut described as uh, a drum set getting thrown down a hundred uh, flight of stairs. He hit so many drums <laughs> at Elvis. Skills, right? yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, but uh, but the other one was was uh, was really the sound of uh, of Mel Shacker was just unbelievable. So so let's let's do this now. So you go from monster movies. Where does music come into your life? Where do you say like, all right, is it? you get into high school, you start noticing girls and you're like, I'm going to pick up a guitar. Were you a guitar bass player first or? I noticed girls from the earliest thing I can remember. I remember My watching, <laughs> I remember watching, uh, first of all, uh, Samantha on uh, Bewitched was totally hot. Uh, I saw Joey Heatherton on, I think a Dean Martin summer. Uh, they used to do these summer shows when the regular shows on TV would run the season and they'd have these summer limited series. I think it was the gold diggers or I don't know what it was called, but Joey Heatherton was on that. They'd have those old, you know, the late sixties, they'd have those Bob Hope USO tour specials that they'd show from overseas when they were visiting the troops and Joey Heatherton would go out there in a, in a mini skirt. And I had a third grade teacher back in old New Jersey, uh, at, uh, uh, my elementary school. And, she was her name was Miss Mazzara, and she used to wear mini skirts and go-go boots, and she had giant frosted hair and false eyelids. I mean, she was just a knockout. So when I was a little kid, I was noticing immediately. Nice. So, well, I'm gonna say this: I didn't mention Mel on the bass players. You didn't mention Julie Newmar, so we're even. <laughs> Julie Julie Newmar, yeah, she was she was that stuff. Oh, I remember. Uh, actually, I was probably. In that episode where I think she has Leslie Gore plays the kitten or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Her sidekick for one that, that gets Robin all smitten. I, I, I think I might have been looking at her. I think Julie Noir might have been too old or something at that time for me. And then you grow up. I mean, we all watch Sonny and Cher on Sunday night and you just watch Cher. 
I mean, she's a lunatic right now, but when you're a little kid and you, what's oh, on TV? And you, you realize, like, I understood why my dad was watching Sonny and Cher. For me, it was the music at first, but, you know. Yeah, well. Cher Bono Allman. Yeah, I mean, well, there was a thing back then. You had to be hot to be on TV, or especially as a female. Now, it's like they, they look for... <laughs> They look for the uglier dudes they can, the ugliest dudes they can to be leading men, and they like them to be man children. They're all beta males, and uh, and uh, you know, there's no more Clint Eastwood walking around. No, I mean, somewhere along the way, somebody decided that people who look like Dustin Hoffman should be leading men. <laughs> well, that's a whole or other. That, or, that, or that that fucking mutt, banana-nosed, horse-toothed jackass uh, Robert De Niro, who's barely Italian, by the way. Yeah. He's about one twentieth. <laughs> All right, simmer down. He Larry. thinks he knows politics Bobby, too. Bobby, look up Bobby Milk, and you'll know. Yeah. Did you hear what Keelan said? No, I missed. Say it, it again, Keelan. He thinks he knows politics, and he needs to shut the fuck up. Exactly. <laughs> those guys, we talk about those guys. They think they're, they good actor thinks they're good at everything. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So so okay, that was a little sidetrack, but yeah. so. How does music come into your life? How do you, do you decide, I want to start playing? Do I, I want to start writing songs? Like, what, how do you transfer from being a fan of monster movies and music to like, I'm going to do my own thing? Well, it's a couple things. I used to watch a show back east. Uh, there was a show called Wonderama. And it was a uh, Saturday morning show in the, in the East Coast, uh, the New York market, that um, had a guy by the name of Chuck McCann, who was like a famous... Uh, I know Chuck McCann. Okay, so it was him, and there was another guy that followed him whose name escapes me, and they would just show kids dancing and current songs. And then I, at night, they would show. Uh, there was a show called Out of Sight, and all it would play was like psychedelic colors, and like Go Go Girls. It was it was it looked like what I would imagine an LSD trip would have looked like, and they would just play like heavier songs at night. Um, so that got me interested. Then of course Tom Jones, and this is Tom Jones hit, and I you know. No human has a voice like him. He's my all-time number two singer. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember my uncle pulling me aside and said, well, Tom Jones is great, but you got to listen to Elvis because he was a big fan of the King. But then years later, so fast forward, I, didn't, I had no musical training. I didn't know anything about that. And, of course, I, I bought a bass because I saw Gene Simmons, and he was the early days of Kiss, the first couple of years. I saw him, and I thought, wow, this is a guy who... He likes Lon Chaney. He likes Marvel Comics. He knows who Stan Lee, Jack Kirby are, uh, and he he was knowledgeable and that in, in all the things that I liked, and and that was when they were dangerous and they were and they yeah. were you know doing the, the the photo shoots where the it was all bondage and S and M and they were scary looking, and that looked like the perfect storm of everything I thought was cool. Um, you know they changed that soon after, but. Um, in that first era, 74 to 76, they would, it was just magic. Um, it wasn't a, so I picked up a bass. I got a used bass. I got an old uh, Gibson EB3 with a crack in it that I bought somewhere for, I think, $150. And I taught myself how to play by just picking up the needle and dropping the needle over and over again on Kiss Alive. All right. Uh, but I never did anything serious with that. And then years later, I have to tell you, I, I was in college in uh, University of Toledo. And uh, that was really like a suburb of Detroit. And the Detroit music scene at that time was hardcore, had erupted around 1980. And that was my awakening where I thought, wow, you don't have to really know how to play to start a band. And I just had an idea that 
I want to play hardcore music. There was all this energy there. And um, I didn't have to be great at it. I just had to be original and, uh, and, and take what I was doing seriously. So that was really it, seeing all the hardcore um, era stuff of, of Detroit market in the, uh, around 80, 81. Do you have a bird on your shoulder right now? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh-uh. But I do have a bird in the next room. So I'm going to change. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. It's fine. I was just curious. Um, do you think for you, like, hardcore appealed to you? I mean, not creative. Creative. On your creative? <laughs> I'm sorry. Creatively. <laughs> Thank you, Damien. Um, or was it just getting violence out? Uh, both. Yeah. I was, an ang- I was an angry kid. My parents were divorced under bad circumstances. So, not, you know, most kids are a little bit angry anyway. And um, trying to figure myself out. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely spoke to that, that part of being angry and doing something that was creative, but I also tried to have fun with it also. I I mean, it wasn't, I knew that what I loved about the hardcore scene was that the do, do it yourself attitude, whereas like all the, the metal bands I would see at that time, their dream was, well, we're going to be like Judas Priest and we're going to get signed to a label Mm -hmm. and make millions of dollars. Well, the hardcore kids were like, Fuck that. We're not waiting to get signed by anything. We're not trying to get signed. We're just trying to make our little seven inch record, press it, put it out on our own, and make our own shows and do our own flyers. Yeah. And that appealed to me. I like that a lot. Did did you have any sort of did you have friends? Did you have enemies in that scene, especially the Detroit scene? I mean, who was it back then? It was the fix, it was Necros. Um any any of those bad any stories stick out? I mean, I, there is a, a very classic story of you and Dave Mustaine, but um <laughs> <laughs> that laughs. That came a few. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, well, here, here's what it was. I, I've never been uh, somebody who hangs out with other musicians because I don't really consider myself as a musician. When people ask me what I do. I punish the bass. I don't really play it. I don't know if I can sing. I just know I can sing just good enough that a few people on the planet think that I'm okay at what I do. Um, so it was more of a creative outlet for me. As far as uh, getting along at that time, nah, there were a lot of. Uh, there are a lot of assholes. Music is full of assholes. There's some nice people along the way, but um, unfortunately, because a lot of them don't realize that they don't have the talent and shouldn't be in it. And they grow up angry because they devoted themselves to something they're not good at. I think what you guys did really stuck out. And I know it was, you know, it was at the same time as Misfits, but, you know, everyone talked about Glenn being like, you know, the Elvis, but you were like a Tom Jones with a little James Cagney cut in there which is cool which i think adds to that but i think you you had such a ferocious attack i mean i don't want to talk too much on manuals i was i was part of that at, at certain points i don't know if keelan you have any things you want to talk about with manuals at all um but i think it was such an original thing um and that the shows were great and it was like a mix between you didn't know if someone's gonna get their ass kicked you didn't know if i mean this this story did happen in cleveland at the fantasy theater true or false you walked off the stage, you put your bass down, and you chased someone all the way downstairs to the street level and kicked his ass in the street. Um, true, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a slightly calmer version of what happened. Actually, I have it on video, uh, oh, October 85. Nice. Some guy who thinks he's, uh, I don't know, he looks like Billy Idol, about twice his size, is knocking people all over the place, and uh, he said the wrong thing. So, no, actually, it's probably... Uh, the single best uh, long jump or broad jump I ever did because I think I jumped over four people uh, 
four or five people deep to get to him, and I caught him as he was going down the stairs. Nice, nice. That he and was that's, the one that ran for the hills. So and, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a beating out in the sideway. It was a shot, and he took off and didn't want any more. And and this is this is kind of what the shows were like. And we're gonna play. Um, uh, let's play. Um, <laughs> burn which burn. So let me ask you about this song, Burn Witch Burn. We're gonna play that right now. Um, I know with a lot of horror bands, they, they, you know, the horror movies have a lot of great titles, so it's easy to make a, a song title, and then you just write around that. You know what I mean? But it never really has anything to do with the title you're using. You're just kind of copying that that title. Yeah. So for for Burn Witch Burn, like you get into exactly what the subject matter is. I mean, what what you're thinking when you're writing a song like that? Well, what I try to do is, you know, it was a, we had a horror theme because that's what I understood. If I could grow, if I could write a great song like uh, "Can't Help Falling in Love," I would have written that. I just didn't have any natural ability to write uh, deep emotional songs, but I felt like I had a little bit of a niche in writing, taking a look at at uh, at um, songs about anger, depression. Uh, if I use some horror movies as inspiration, I always paid homage to them by by listing what it was or by using the title um, and just trying to take a different angle at it rather than just you you hear a lot. Of, it became very popular in the horror punk thing because Glenn Danzig, you mentioned earlier, who, who is such a talented songwriter and singer, he put his own he used titles, but it was his interpretation. It wasn't just a summary of what the movie was, which nobody wants to hear that. At least I don't want to hear that. Um, and that became a very popular theme with horror punk. Ours was not, you know, we were, I call it monster metal, beast metal, whatever. I mean, you were part of it, Tim, so you know. It, it's, it, it, we were one of the early, earliest crossovers trying to blend metal with punk. And that's probably the thing I hang my hat on that I'm most proud of, that we did that. And we're recognized as one of the real early versions of a real early purveyors of that. But, um... Yeah, if I used a title, I tried to make it meaningful, but not just summarize what went on in the movie. With that being said, this is Larry the Wolf and Manimals with Burn Witch Burn.
something in the air to I'm that I'm that person who does not listen to their own music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to listen to your own music, but man, that solo in that song, who the who was that? <laughs> well, okay. Now, I just to, just a point of clarification. I hope to God you played the uh, 2000 version. You know what? I, yeah, you know what I played. <laughs> All right. So, um, so from there, from from music, you play around, and you know, I remember one time we you, you turned me on to the whole. Um, uh, horror convention scene, which you know, I came from playing shows just as regular shows all the time. But with you, we played a lot of horror conventions, and we got to meet a lot of cool people. And we, I mean, Christopher Lee watched our band. That was insane. Or your band, me awesome. playing guitar. I mean, our band. That that was something else. You know what I mean? Like those were some really good times. And I can't thank you enough for that because when I think of my own career, some of the brightest moments are those times we spent together, driving out there, talking monster movies, talking early kiss before they ruin themselves and you know getting to meet these people and play these shows for some people didn't get it some people got it you know we, we had a lot of really good shows so i just want to take this time to thank you for that well tim thank you and guys you so you know i mean we we would i would i had a brief thing in the 80s and when you mentioned earlier you know, we played with bands like the original misfits played with them played with the necros played with negative approach played with government issue then we switched into metal we played with uh, nuclear assault and Megadeth and a few others, but when we did made a comeback in '99, I would not have done that if it wasn't Tim doing it with me. Um, nah, so awesome. you made that possible for us to go back. It was the it was the right. It's all about the chemistry, and we had the right chemistry at that time, and uh, we were able to go back. I and mean, I remember playing the one Chillith show. What that was was it was a nice niche because it was a way of us going, you know, on a mini tour and hitting people who would all converge on one convention from all different cities and in parts of the country, and they'd get to see us. You know, we, we could knock out uh, basically 10 cities playing yeah. one convention. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I remember, I remember Tim, you know, again, the, Christopher Lee sitting backstage, standing backstage with him and, you know, with very specific directions from the promoters. Nobody is to talk to Mr. Lee, leave him alone, don't go near him. And we're all standing there. I said, "What? Well, you know, of course I'm going to say something. So, Mr. Lee, would it be okay if we get a picture with you? And he said, I don't see why not. <laughs> and I don't have a voice anywhere near near as massive as his. And then we stood and took the picture. And then you've got Michael Ripper, you know, another famous Hammer star who's in a zillion Hammer will be standing yeah. behind him. And then you and I are standing on the side of the stage. And I remember uh, we're watching, uh, you know, talking to uh, Cherry Curry and Sandy West. Uh, and then uh, Ray Manzarek comes from the doors. And I remember his assistant says, hey, would you mind if Mr. Manzarek borrows your drummer's throne to play? So it, it was a strange, strange uh, collection of, of people. It was a lot of fun. So let's tell the, the Dave Mustaine story once and for all, because it's been mentioned. Um, it started with you taking a WWE outlook in an interview, correct? Yes. All right. Yep. Tell the story. Okay. So we were doing back-to-back -back shows in 86. Uh, it was Halloween night. We made, and this was, this was my, my uh, mistake. I made the mistake of booking a show at a place called Blondie's in Detroit. It was us and Nuclear Assault. 
on Halloween night. Now, of course, Alice Cooper was playing over at Joe Lewis Arena or whatever was the arena at that time. Cobo. So that that killed the draw for us that night. So um, I should not have tried to compete with Alice Cooper in Detroit on Halloween night. But what are you going to do? So we had back-to-back nights. We played uh, Detroit at Blondie's on that Friday. And the Saturday night was a show at a, a place here whose name escapes me with Megadeth. And it was and it was billed as a, a co-headline thing. So the local uh, uh, entertainment magazine, The Scene, which I think you remember, Tim, they wanted to do their first, it was our first, like, big interview. We had been playing shows in the Cleveland area from 84, so for about two years at that point. And we had just built up a very strong reputation. The Blood is the Harvest EP had just come out. And um, so we do an interview, and the guy wanted to take, like, a very... Uh, he said, you guys remind me of like a very WWF type of WWE now type of attitude with, you know, with the furry stuff and the, and the, and the, and the image and all that. So yeah, absolutely. He says, you might as well go with that. I said, no, go ahead. Let's have fun with this thing. So I think somewhere in the article, I said, well, you know, everybody ought to be there, uh, make it out there. Cause everybody, you know, maybe that's been granted the privilege of playing on the same stage as us on the same night. You'll, <laughs> there'll be a full, there'll be a full moon. So we'll make our transformation, whatever I said. So we get in there that night and um, we're loading in and, um, you know, the club owner's like, oh, oh my God, we got big problems. I said, well, what's the big problem? Oh, those guys are really angry. I said, what guys? Oh, they're making it. They're, they're really angry. I said, all right, well, you know, where are they? I'll go over and talk with them. Well, you know, it's not a big deal. And um, he said, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Long story short, they, they wanted to have, um, we had one guy, if you remember, a guy named Ron that would come out and uh, was one guy that would help us with, as a road crew person. Cause generally we, we did all our own. We moved our own equipment. We didn't have a crew. And um, so uh, a few of their guys, they had to wear their road crew guys. Uh, I think they approached our one guy and said, you know, they're going to kick your ass. And uh, our fellow Ron said, well, we think that would be a, that'd probably be a very bad decision on your part. And, um, Long story short, I, I think the only guy who would try to be a wise guy was the uh, the bass player. And I'm sure he's a nice guy now. Ellipson? Yes, Dave Ellipson. And, yeah, so he had, we're, we're sharing a, a, we're sharing the same dressing room, okay? Everybody in one room, which is too many people anyway. And they've got their crew people or, or their, their road crew people around. You know, we're eyeballing them. And, and uh, it was uh, me and Ron. And uh, I don't think they wanted, I don't know where the, the uh, drummer and the uh, guitar player were at the time doing heroin uh, i'm sure <laughs> well no 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 not not their guys my guy oh, okay so, <laughs> doing push-ups i'm sure <laughs> yeah uh, so it was myself and uh, this fellow ron who was our one crew guy standing in this little i don't know 15 by 12 room and uh dave ellison says uh to a road guy hey uh light this for me and he has the crew his crew guy light a cigarette for him and he blows smoke me he says so uh, is, the, is there going to be a full moon tonight? And he looks around like laughing like for, uh, uh, for uh, uh, reinforcement from his crew guys all laughing with him. They made a big joke. So I just put out my hand. I said, yeah, I'm Larry the Wolf. And he, he went to smack my hand away and I caught his hand. I squeezed it and I said, it's nice to meet you. And then he just pulled his hand away and he was gone. He didn't have anything to say. <laughs> and Dave, uh, Dave Mustaine was over in the corner. And they're like the, the doorway watching this. And I walk over to him and I said, uh, hey, I'm Larry the Wolf. Uh, I put my hand out and he, I said, we have any problems here and uh, tonight? And he just looked at me and he said, no, no problems, man. Shook my hand and walked away. Hmm. 
Now, we had heard horror stories about them from people who, when the previous times they paid Cleveland, that they tried to be hard asses with people and they were going to, I mean, those guys weren't going to beat anybody up, but they thought they were going to send their crew people after somebody uh, and it just didn't happen. So it got blown out of proportion, I'm sure. But I will tell you that night they did stand on, there was uh, three or four of them. I, th I think there were some of them doing drugs and, you know, and I don't hold shit against people who were full of drugs at the time. You know, that was, it seems like everything I've read with Dave Mustaine, I saw that he, I think he had a cancer issue that he's, uh, that he beat. So good for him. God bless yeah, him. It's if all he's positive now, dude. Right now. I mean, but at the time, at the time they thought they were going to be tough guys with us by sending the crew afterwards and that wasn't going to fucking happen. Yeah. And you know, then, and they reconsidered, they reconsidered and uh, they sat on the side of the stage uh, trying to get people to boo people. And it's funny because a good friend of mine who you would know said after the show, he approached Mustang because he said he really likes him. He was a big Megadeth fan, too. And he said, what do you think of those guys? And he's now this is apparently the story from what he told me. And he has no reason to lie to me. He said Mustang said to him uh, off the record, they fucking suck off on the record or off the record. They were great <laughs> on the record. They suck. So, all right. Well, there you go. I mean, good cop, bad cop, and he's famous for that. So there was no issue. Uh, but again, I introduced myself. They wanted no problem. They wanted no no issues that night. And then you and I, we, you know, I didn't see you for years. And then I go see when the Misfits get back together with with Michael Graves. This is before they have the albums or anything. It was just like, shit, they're gonna do this little run. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, Larry the Wolf comes out on stage in full Manimals gear. With the Misfits, how'd oh, that come shit. apart? About uh, that was actually, and I, and I will I will say one other comment to wrap up that other thing, that other story, because now it brings up old memories. The guitar player at the time, he ran for the hills and he hid <laughs> my guitar player, and he didn't want to play the show that night. And I told him, and he and the drummer, and I said, either we're going out as a, two, I said, if you don't play, we're going out as a two piece, because we did not get on this to not play this fucking show. You're out of your mind. So that guy grudgingly did it, but that's why he he didn't last much longer after that. Uh, he was one of those guys oh, that wanted to talk stuff, and he liked to get me into problems. But he'd run to the hills if there ever was a problem. Well, dude, like let, let's be honest. Like I knew when we would play, like you know, I had the left side of your stage locked down, but I knew like no matter what was going to happen, that you would be there because things did get hairy every once in a while. But you yes. were you were there, and like I know like. You know, you had my back, and then I was gonna have your back because you were. Yeah. I'm not the guitar player he's talking about. Just so, I, just to make that <laughs> yeah. clear, I'm saying that, I would that be guitar there for player, that. Yeah, that guitar player pseudonym was the Wraith. So that he was, he just, he, he was not that. He couldn't count on him. But you're right, Tim. I could count on you. I could count on Orlock. Orlock the Undead. <laughs> Those were the days. So, so how did it come about that you you jumped on stage with the Misfits and sang better than the singer they had at the time? <laughs> <laughs> that's very kind of you. Well, I'm still I'm still reeling from the Tom Jones Jimmy Cagney. I, I mean, that you just made my my year. Um, so I forget exactly how we got. Oh, so here's what happens: 96 hits. I think I get on the internet. I was completely shocked to find out I was at that point about six seven years removed from having played played any shows or done any music. And I get on the internet and I. I just do a casual search as I'm figuring out what searches are. And I find out that there's two or three, maybe four unofficial fan manimals, fan uh, sites around the world. So it was like, there was a guy in South America, there were a couple in the United States and there was one over in Europe. 
And I just, it just absolutely blew my mind. I couldn't believe anybody knew or cared about my old record at that time. So um, there was a, a fella whose name, uh, his last name is Kennedy, and I forget his first name. He's a really nice guy. He got in touch with me because he ran something called the Misfits Bible, I think, or Misfits Central. Misfits Central, yeah. That's a, that was yeah. like the early Misfits when the internet first started, that was a good resource that people were using. I was like the Misfits Bible, damn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he was going to do a, a blog or something like that before there was a blog or before that term was invented. But yes, it was the fellow from the Misfits Cent who ran Misfits Central, and he had been cataloging all this stuff and flyers and and uh, who had played shows with. So um, he actually found me on the internet and. Um, um, I think he posted and he said, I need information on these bands. And I sent him an email and I said, uh, Hey, that was me. You know, I was in a, a show. I played the January 83 show with them at club stain in Toledo. And, uh, so he actually put me in touch with, uh, Jerry only at the time, because he said, do you happen to know that actually those guys are trying to get back together? They're going through their lawsuits or whatever. They're trying, trying to finish up and get the touring rights to using the name. So long story short, I end up having some conversations with, with Jerry, um, and um, I'm probably at this time 36, 37 years old. I'm a couple of years younger than Jerry, a couple of years older than Doyle, and um, he and I are having conversations about me possibly joining them as their singer. And uh, he called one uh, one afternoon, and he was giving me the pitch about, well, you know, that 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 old record you have. We all like that record. You know, the, that sounds like this. He says, we'll just change some of the lyrics around. We need to write songs. We'll take Blood is the Harvest, and we'll call it something else, and we'll change a few lyrics, and then we'll co-publish, and you'll be able to send your kids to college on the money we'll make off this. And I said, well, you know, that's all great, but I'd rather just leave those songs stay as they are. We can play them if you want, but why don't we just write new stuff? So we had probably three, four conversations. And in that time that's going on, now I'm in Ohio, they're in, in New Jersey. And um, I hear that they, um, they get a singer. And then he kept in touch with me because the idea was I was going to then uh, join him on stage for a few things along the way because, and I'm, I don't know Michael Graves at all other than meeting him that night. Don't know anything about him. Um, but Jerry said they were going to work with him because I think he was 18 and 19 years at, at the time, years old. And they were going to see how he worked out. But um, Jerry said to me, well, you know, you're my second string if anything happens. Well, guys, um, I'm not, you know, we all have our ego. I'm not anybody's second string. So um, I think it was always, I think they also wanted somebody who, they wanted somebody as close to a Danzig as they could. They loved the idea of having the, the shorter guy in the middle and the two big bookends on the outside. They didn't want three guys across the front lineup who were looked similar size and all that. And it was good for that. It was fine. I think they wanted an employee also. Um, and I wanted to be part of somebody who would, who would write together. Um, but anyway, we kept the, uh, they kept the word and he called me, says, you're going to come in and play with us that night. We'll do some songs. And it was a lot of fun. I think we did three songs together. What, what song? I don't remember what songs you did, to be honest with you, but do you, do you remember? We did, yeah, we did Astro Zombies for sure, because I know, uh, uh, I'm sure we did that. We did, um, we are 138 at the end, and there was one other in the middle, and I can't remember what the other one was. I'm trying to remember. It was a long time ago, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. so it was Astro Zombies for sure, 
And then it was one of these things, right? I don't think Michael wanted to sit down and it, it wasn't, you know, it was a Cleveland show. So of course there are going to be a few people who knew who I was. And I had not been on stage at that point for eight years, yeah. nine years. So there were a few people that were got out that I was going to be on that show. So of course, I'm going to have a couple of people yelling out for, for me or the old band name while they were playing. So it, it was a great night. It was a lot of fun. It really was. I mean, my wife came, uh, my sisters came. I think I've got pictures of my dad with, with everybody. It, it's, it was just a fun night for all of us. Cool. That's amazing. Yeah, that's rad, man. That's super cool. Um, but it was, go ahead. I was just saying, there was definitely, there was, I had some fans within the, within that camp and I had some uh, probably detractors within that camp because I know a few months later they played the Agora and that was when the singer had gotten arrested somewhere. So they played as a three piece that night. Yeah. And I was down, I think it was maybe July or August of that summer. And I was sitting on the bus with them and Doyle came up to me and says, Hey, you going to sing for us tonight, man? I said, hey, if you want me to, of course. And then somewhere in there, uh, it didn't, I wasn't asked. There's a third so, brother, Larry. Well, yeah, Kenny. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the third brother says a lot. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't, I don't know if he was a big fan of mine, but that's okay. Yeah. Actually, I think you were the one that told me the assessment they had of me. They liked my voice, but I blow it out after three songs. Wasn't it you who told me that? No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Don Foos, who you'll know. Um, Don Foos was, I think, legendary hardcore front man who's Biggie. still acting. <laughs> you know Don, right? I and, love um, Don. Don's a great guy. Went to high school I together. I, I bumped into Don six months ago at Bay Village. Before the shutdown, I bumped into him at uh, um, uh, Bay Village Post Office, and he was telling me about when he had his audition for the Bad Brains singer position. And he asked me about the Misfits thing. He says, man, he says, I remember talking to those guys who were playing once. And he said, yeah, we love Larry's voice, but shit, he blows his voice out after like three songs and he's done. And I said, well, that's, that's not entirely untrue. So I can understand that point. You've never blown your voice. When I played with you, you, you never blew your voice out. Sounds, I mean, sounds like a lie. Yeah. I mean, you're being, you're being kind. <laughs> Dale's caught on fire during our shows. <laughs> he, he actually has. The best, you know, there is a there is a time I am going to pull out uh, videos that and one of the best videos of all time is uh, Dale. Guys, we had bombs on stage and oh, we nice. had no real bombs, bombs. Yeah. homemade bombs. You're like pipe bombs. Yeah, like <laughs> who do, who does your pyro? Uh, Ted Kaczynski. You know what I mean? Like we're letting bombs off in clubs. Dude. Yes. That and then we had to stop it all when the Great White thing happened, where they, you know, that that tragedy. Yeah. But up to then, I think the last one was maybe December of two thousand one. All these bombs go off, and Dale comes out, and there's there's something. One of these things ignites, and it's burning. So we, I have a video of Dale or Dale comes running out in in a in a in a cloak, and he's got an extinguisher, <laughs> and he tries to pound out the fire with the bottom of the extinguisher. <laughs> Oh Instead of using it, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's like it must have had a sticker on it that said, "In in case of fire, try to bludgeon it." <laughs> it was amazing because, uh, you know, Dale actually started playing some keyboard for us for a minute, right? And and he was trying to do his face because we wore makeup on stage, and somehow Dale turned his face; it was just completely gray. Remember that? <laughs> oh like, God. what were you? You look like the Raiders fan or something like that. Like, <laughs> do you like the the turtle kid? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
and he had this store bought like real cheap polyester like cape with the hood up and and I look over playing I didn't realize there was a fire and I see Dale like Larry said like just pounding this <laughs> fire with a fire extinguisher which could have exploded just from the pressure anyway yeah dude well that, that was, was legendary <laughs> it wasn't as dramatic as uh, shooting off the extinguisher but it was it was definitely funnier and it was just as effective because he managed to put it out somehow <laughs> yeah we, it was crazy the stuff we used to do in these small clubs with fire. <laughs> We had a, a whole stage. as a graveyard set that Black Sabbath later ripped off to the T. Wow. Um, which was pretty crazy. But those are those are good times, man. And the guy, the drummer, Dave, made all of the stage gear. So it wasn't like fake props. Like if we had an iron gate, it was really an iron gate. It was just like a that's workout so just loading yeah. in. That's super cool. Well, that, well, that's the truth. It's interesting because Dave, you know, his background, he, he was a... Uh, very interesting guy. Went to medical school, became a doctor, and then uh, he he also did carpentry on the side with his uh, with his brother, so he could build houses. So he built everything. It wasn't like taking uh, introduction to theater where you'd make a scrim and a, a guy walks off carrying a wall that looks like a medieval rock wall. It was if he built a wall, it was a wall, and we three of us that <laughs> like five hundred pounds. It. Yeah, it was just all made to be. Uh, it's funny because he he has. We went to see his oldest daughter uh, does a lot of theater. So a couple of years ago, he adapted all those stone walls in that cemetery set to be a backdrop for a, a production of Beauty and the Beast. Oh, and nice. people, oh, wow. That is the most awesome stage set. And he's laughing. He's like, well, yeah, that we used to use that on stage. But <laughs> it's true, Tim. If I draw a picture up, Dave could make it. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. He did. He once he made like this like um, gargoyle head for his kick drum, but it looked like Yoda. <laughs> and we were like, we we're like, what are we gonna do, man? Like yeah. that shit looks like Yoda. You know what I mean? Everything. Like, <laughs> well, that's Dave's personality. If he does something, he does it over the top. So when he was collecting Iron Giant, he has everything Iron Giant. When he was collecting uh, Star Trek, he had everything. So when he started making gargoyles, we went from having two gargoyles to having seventy-two gargoyles <laughs> within. Oh stuff. my god! <laughs> yeah, I love oh, that guy. I miss him. Oh, he's he's Dave is great, and um. Uh, but he, he, the thing that he really made that was cool, we had those, uh, along with the walls and the gates, we had the uh, two, uh, I asked him if he could, I showed him like the Ken Strickfadden lighting effects from the early Universal Monster movies, uh, you know, with the lightning towers and all that, and God bless him, he built one. He built one for each side of the stage, and we would have those uh, kick off at the intro and at the end of the set, uh, synced up when Dale hit it with the, uh, with the electronic or the electric crackling cackling sound i mean it was, yeah it, it it was very cool you know the times that everything worked it was pretty cool it was fun like for a kid like me that used to go see kiss and and got to see that destroyer stage set to play on a set like that was it was a, a lot of fun and it's probably the most fun to this day that i ever had playing in bands and, and you know ian and i did a lot of stuff and it was great but just when when we played on stage as Manimals, like you would just let everything out. And there is something to be said that you become another character, like when Kiss does it or Alice Cooper does it. To be able to do that, you know what I mean? And people realize you're playing a character so you can look at someone in the face or get in their face or whatever. And it's just part of the show. And I think that helps a lot. Yeah, it, it was it was very special, Tim. So thank you for, uh, you gave that uh, new life. And again, if it wasn't the right chemistry, music should be fun. And that's why years ago, um, when it, whenever it became business, I stepped back because I, I don't I don't need another job. I want to do this as a creative outlet and to have fun with it, and to do something meaningful. You know, so it wasn't to be silly. So people had to understand that we treaded a very 
uh, you know, we, we walked the line of not taking ourselves too seriously, but taking our music and our shows very seriously. Yes, we did take it, take it very seriously. Let's do a little, um, cause we're running out of time here. Let's do a quick, uh, rapid fire. What is your favorite horror movie of all time? Oh, good Lord. Um, Right now, I'll say, just off the top of my head, I'll say uh, White Zombie, 1932, Halpern Brothers, Bela Lugosi as Murder Legrand. But if you ask me tomorrow, I might say King Kong. What is your favorite comic book issue of all time? Spider-Man 121, uh, The Death of Gwen Stacy. Mm, Nice. You you pulled out that Nightshade one the other day, that Captain America. Um, Yes. Nightshade, if you guys don't know that character, check it out. That was some good stuff back in the day. Captain Um, America. Before, yep. Favorite uh, band of all time? That's hard. It really is. I mean, my my sentimental favorites are Kiss for who they were. But the older I get, guys, I got to tell you, the older I get, the better Grand Funk gets. And the old Kiss stuff doesn't hold up for me the way it used to. So, uh, I'm going to sponge on that because for me, there there is... You know, Kiss depends on when you jumped into that lane, right? And the early yep. Kiss was more Gene Simmons, and it was more riff-based, cream-based, which would be closer to Grand Funk. And then at some point, I don't know if it was around, you know, maybe it was Ezrin and and Paul Stanley took hold, and it was more like a humble pie and more chord progression thing, but it's a different band all of a sudden. You know what I mean? It's still got the same thing running through it, but if you really listen to music and the riffy songs that were 74 and 75, it never happened again with them. Yeah, and I wouldn't blame Ezra. I like it because I think Destroyer is their their uh, creative high point. But um, I mean, he made he made Alice Cooper great. He made every Alice Cooper uh, record better. Um, but it's somewhere after the solo albums. Somewhere in the solo albums, it went to their heads, and they all decided uh, everybody wants to write equal equal number of songs and sing an equal number of songs. And I'm sorry, I don't want to hear Hooligan. Yeah, you well, know, to see I, that's for I, me. I, like I, it's Love Gun, where it kind of. I think once they headlined uh, Madison Square Garden on the Rock and Roll Over tour, it was never the same. I think Love Gun is just a product, and everything after that was just product. Good product. Some of it I really like, but... I agree. And I saw four shows on the Dynasty tour, so I have very, very vivid memories of that tour. And as much as I desperately wanted to love them, it, they, were, they were... All of a sudden, you mentioned the Destroyer stage. When they were on the Destroyer stage, they were still, they were the show, and that stage was a backdrop. It yeah. was transitioning with the Love Gun stage, because all of a sudden, it's like, hey, there's going to be pieces of the stage moving, and all that, okay. All of a sudden, then Gene starts to work a little less hard on stage. By 79, it's like the show's taken over, second to them. Not not every guy. I mean, Paul was terrific, but uh, I, Ace and Peter were dialing in their performances on that tour. So, before that, that's why the rock and roll over the destroyer tours are special to me because that's when it's the it's absolutely them at their peak they're still working like it's a wall of amps behind them and they're the show with a great backdrop uh, and staging later on they become too dependent on the show to to carry it the effects to carry it if that makes sense makes total sense yeah any final words keelan no it's nice learning your history larry and uh i'll be listening to manimals all week this week for halloween well, that I'm very honored to hear that. My God, and I will tell you guys that Manimal's name, 
I, I regretted that name ever since I, I first used it. And Tim knows that because I didn't like it. And right after I started using it, because it was, it was pulled from H.G. Wells' Island of Dr. Morello, it became Island of Lost Souls. It, it was, I was going to switch the name because there was a TV show yes, that came <laughs> shortly after. And I was like, oh, shit, well, good reason to get rid of that. And, uh, and we had written a song already called White Zombie, so that was going to be the name. Uh, unfortunately, I, uh, on uh, Glenn Danzig's uh, recommendation, I sent a demo into uh, Caroline Distribution at that time. And uh, eight months later, I find out that there's a band out of New York that's been renamed White Zombie. So that's, that, that blew that for us. Mm. Um, but that was supposed to be the name. Didn't they have at the beginning of the show, Manimal, I think William Conrad, who played Canon, he did like a voiceover about... What's that guy's name on there? Like Jonathan Chase or something was the manimal. Anyway, I'm just aging. Myself. It must have been, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. How about, yeah. How, how about you brothers? Anything? No, I just wanted to say, like, I didn't know the history about um, playing the horror conventions, but I've been to quite a few myself, and I, I know that's a really cool community and reminds me a lot of, like, the hardcore community as well, like the DIY aesthetic and, you know, doing it. And uh, so that's really cool to learn all about that. Um I think it's super cool just to get some time to chat with you. We've heard a lot about you, you know, you're, you're legendary over here. So yeah, <laughs> it's nice to finally chat with you. Well, you guys are too kind. And uh, Tim's been my guy for a long time. And what's nice is we're going to soon have, uh, he hasn't even heard all of them yet, but uh, in a couple of months, we're going to have a, a 20 year or whatever, a career retrospective to CD set out. That'll have a bunch of uh, live tracks that Tim played on. That's amazing. Um, Ooh, nice. I haven't even it'll, heard it'll be, so it'll it'll be it'll be dynamite. I, I hope I'm in. T- I, I hope I'm in tune. <laughs> I get well. You, uh, there's no guarantees that any of us are in tune, but that's <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like Damien said, when that comes out, let's have you back, um, Larry. You know how I feel about you. You're a great man with an even better family, and we're gonna close out with um, something you talked about earlier, and that was the the uh, strict fad machines. This is. Uh, Larry the Wolf and the Manimals with Man-Made Monster. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, guys. Thank it's been you. a lot of fun. Thanks, man. Riding ships can locks a penny had a thousand suture lines Gave you all I had to give to take it to the other side